faith. This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Brendan Leonard. Brendan is a writer and creative whose stories about adventure and wild places have built him a loyal following in the outdoor world and beyond. Whether it's writing for his blog Semi-Rad, authoring eight books and counting, or making such films as his recent How to Run 100 Miles, Brendan combines humor, introspection, and skilled storytelling in an authentic way that strikes a chord with audiences. But as you'll hear, Brendan's secret ingredient for success in his creative pursuits is actually his ability to consistently focus in and grind out the hard work, week after week, year after year. Brendan is an Iowa native who moved west to attend journalism school at University of Montana. After struggling with alcohol addiction in his youth, the west wide open spaces brought Brendan a much-needed change of scenery and an opportunity for a fresh start. What started as short hikes around Missoula transformed into an all-in obsession with rock climbing that eventually led to writing gigs with Outside, Men's Journal, Alpinist, and many more well-known publications. Brendan is a shining example of how persistence, hard work, and a willingness to bet on yourself can lead to a fulfilling life and career doing what you love. We had a fun, wide-ranging, and hilarious conversation about his life and career, and we also managed to wander into a few completely unexpected topics. We chatted about Brendan's all-or-nothing personality and the challenges and rewards associated with being wired that way. We talked about his ability to focus on the process rather than the goal, and how that approach is beneficial when creating or pursuing an outdoor objective. We obviously talked about climbing, but we also discussed ultramarathons, specifically his recent experience running a 103-mile race through the Colorado mountains. And as you've come to expect, we chat about favorite books, films, and a ridiculously long list of other interesting topics. This was so much fun, and I really appreciate Brendan having me over to chat. I highly, highly recommend his book, 60 Meters to Anywhere, and Make It Till You Make It. So make sure you check those out. Also, be sure to watch his film, How to Run 100 Miles. I've watched a ton of ultra running movies, and this is my favorite. Check out the episode notes for links to all this and more. Hope you enjoy. The way I start out these things is when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Because you do a lot. Uh, you mostly just say I'm a writer and a filmmaker. Uh, kind of depends on the year, I guess. Uh, I remember when I first decided to like quit my job and become a full-time writer. Somebody asked me at, at the outdoor retailer trade show, you're like, so what do you do? And the first time I said it, I, I go, I'm a, a writer. <laughs> it was like, it was like, you like trying on a sweater. And like, if, that fits. Okay. All right. And, and yeah, the lady was like, Oh cool. And I was like, she bought it. <laughs> and then it got easier to say after that, you know, but yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's funny to say it because where I grew up that you like, if I told my high school guidance counselor, you know, when he said, well, what do you want to do? We need to talk about where you're going to college. If he said, what do you, what do you want to do for a career? If I said, well, I think I want to be an adventure writer. He'd have been like, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's a thing. Did you make that up? <laughs> yeah. You know, so they just say there wasn't that. I don't think anyone would know how to tell a high school kid how to do that. You know, maybe, maybe a pretty limited segment of high school guidance counselors, you know? Oh yeah. So speaking of growing up, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in small towns in Iowa. So I went to high school and, 
a little town called New Hampton, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, 3,000 people, six stoplights, kind of out there in the glacial plains, you know, surrounded by cornfields. Um, but yeah, all my, my entire life until 23, yeah, I bounced around Iowa. Um, and so how did you end up out West? Cause it wasn't from my understanding, I, we were talking about, I read your book and I loved it. Um, it's not like as a child, you were dreaming about scaling the big peaks of the, the Rockies. How, yeah. how did you end up out here? Um, so I, I, my senior year in college, I was getting, I, I was on my fifth major marketing, I mean, I was on track to graduate and it was pretty clear that I didn't really want to do it. Hmm. Um, didn't want to do like marketing and sales straight up as a job. Um, but I'd started writing for the school newspaper, um, as a columnist, which I don't remember how much I got paid. It was not much. Um, but people started to respond to it and I was really excited about it. And I'd be walking across campus and somebody would recognize, you know, my head from the mugshot in the paper and be like, Hey, that was, that was great. Or I liked your thing. And like, what kind of stuff would you write? Um, like criticisms uh, of the administration. Was it, was it kind of troublemaking stuff or no, no, it was mostly just funny stuff. You know, one time, one of my last ones was an apology to all the bars in town because I like literally just had a list of everything that I had, you know, cause I drank a ton then and it was really a disaster. You know, I was like, Hey, sorry about that time. I threw up here. Sorry about the time we did this, you know, and like that was one of them. Um, one was all about, sort of the history of the F word because nobody really had it. My research at the time, you couldn't, it wasn't really nailed down where it actually came from. I I still don't think it is. Um, and I just remember a guy, I was walking across campus to go to the business school and one guy goes, Hey, nice fucking column. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, thanks. So with, you know, with that, I was like, I was thinking like, how do I get into this writing thing? Mm -hmm. And I was a senior. So I started applying to, um, grad schools in journalism and my GPA was terrible, uh, because I just drank all the time and missed class. I was I barely graduated, but the university of Montana would take basically, you didn't have to have a journalism undergrad degree to go to their journalism graduate school. So they take anybody, which made it really interesting. Um, cause everybody had different backgrounds, uh, but that they let me in and I was, it, you know, at that time it was a great option for me because I, the summer before I went, I actually went into substance abuse treatment for alcoholism and did, did a week in jail. Um, so it's pretty interesting, uh, introducing yourself at classes, but I was, you know, thinking, I don't belong here, you know, I don't know, but it was a, it was a fresh start for me. It was like, Iowa was, you know, I was getting myself into all sorts of trouble. And, you know, when you leave and get away from all your friends, not that it was my friend's fault, but like you mm-hmm. get out of that social group, you, you know, you can't do those things anymore, which was plus if I got arrested again, I was going to go to a jail for six months for violating probation. So it was kind of a keep you straight. Yeah. So I decided to go to become a writer, uh, go to journalism school. And, uh, that was 2002, 2004. So you um, packed up, went to Missoula and I mean, that, that's a lot going on at once. You left home really for the first time you're in recovery. That's your first year recovery. Is that right? Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's a ton going on. So in the midst of all that, how did you end up kind of falling in love with the outdoors? Uh, boy, there was, there was a little university of Montana campus is right next to, it's called Mount Sentinel. Like Mm -hmm. the mountain literally drops right down into campus. Um, and you know, if you were to be honest with it, it's pretty, it's like a giant grassy hill, but you know, the top of it's, 
think 1200 or 1500 feet up yeah. from campus right there. And there's a little trail that goes up to this big M that's on the side of the mountain. And I would hike up that thing a lot and just enjoy the view. And, uh, my cousin went there at the time and I would go on these little weekend hikes with her. And she took me up to Glacier National Park, uh, one time for a backpacking trip where we had four people in a three person tent I didn't sleep at all. I wore all cotton. I didn't have a proper backpack. Everything was just strapped to the side, the outside of this like little North face backpack that I had for, that I took my books to class in. Uh Um, and I was just standing up there, like just in complete awe at this, you know, this view of these incredible, like glacially carved mountains. And, you know, that was, I didn't really get what was happening. I was just kind of like, you know, I didn't say, Oh, I want to be here all the time, but you know, or change my life. It was just kind of like, this is a thing I could do. You know, I could be one of these people that goes out here and sees this and feels like this every weekend or or whatever, you know? So that was kind of the start of it. I think for me, do you think that when you, when that came into your life, that that was a huge help in kind of taking your mind off of the, the recovery process and, and allowing you to, I don't know, focus, focus your energy on that versus sitting around thinking about, Oh, I got to I, I can't, uh, you know, fall off the wagon here that kind of thing. Yeah. Cause I didn't, I mean, my routine there, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a driver's license. I couldn't drive. I couldn't go into a bar if, you know, like it's pretty, you probably wouldn't get caught being in a bar, but if I got caught in a bar, I would be going shipped back to Iowa and go to, go to jail for six months. Um, so I had to like basically behave, but I didn't really know what to do because, I didn't know how to relate to people without alcohol. So I would just kind of stay home and watch movies and chain smoke, you know, up until that point. And that got me kind of started. But the real thing I think that drove it, that really changed my life was I discovered rock climbing, um, after I left Missoula. Um, and that was just sort of this, oh, this is an identity. You know, you can do this as, you know, this is like your thing. And like, you know, where people would ask you at a dinner party or something. So what do you do? And you'd kind of like, oh, I wish they wouldn't ask me what I do for my job. Cause what I really want to talk about is climbing. You know? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm a climber, you know? Um, and that became this thing. And it just like gave me identity and confidence, you know, like it was a way of, you know, the fear you experience while climbing and you punch through it because you, either you have to, or you want to, you want to be the person who goes up, not down, you know, mm-hmm. who doesn't give up that just carried over into every area of my life, you know, as you know, the previous couple of years, like learning how to be sober again, really trying to find your feet. You just don't know what you do. You're just kind of like, I'm not like everybody else. I don't, you know, Oh, I don't, I don't drink. I, I can't, you know, you tell people at parties, I don't drink or, you know, it's kind of like awkward. Why do you and, think that is? Cause I don't drink. I quit drinking like 10 years ago, yeah. nine, 10 years ago. And it, it it's the odd. I did it mo- mostly because I felt like it was. A, I was wasting my time. It was a complete waste of time, and I was. I woke up actually when I was in Costa Rica. I woke up hungover and I missed a day of surfing, and I got so mad, and I said, "I'm never. I'm never drinking again." And I haven't since then. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was like I think we're alike in some ways in that all or nothing. Like it's it's all it's one hundred percent or zero, and but the funny thing is like looking. Now, I mean, I'm 40 years old, but when I, if we, if I go to a bar or somebody offers me a drink, I'm like, I don't want any. And then they keep pushing or whatever. Like, I don't drink. You can see that it makes them uncomfortable. And I've never, I, why do you think that is? I don't, cause I don't, I don't care. 
I mean, I think it's just because it's such a big part of our society, and most people don't actually step back and go, uh, you know, is this positively impacting my life? You know, and who cares, right? Like, who needs to think about it? If it's not a problem for you, yeah, enjoy, have a beer, you know? Yeah, sure. There's that subset of us. It's like, don't do not do real well with it, you know? Yeah, like, moderation doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody has a joke about, like, yeah, I break out in handcuffs, allergic, <laughs> or something like that, you know? I feel like that's what happened to me, too, you know? Um, I had a lot of trouble, and uh, I don't, you know, like you, I just don't think it helps my life at all. And it also is this, you know, right when I quit drinking, one of my buddies who I drank with a lot, Bob, who was older, he was in his late thirties when I met him and we were having dinner and he goes, uh, I just quit drinking. He ordered a glass of wine and I didn't bring it up or anything. I th- somehow we were talking about it. And he said, when I drink, it's because I'm not happy with who I am right now. Hmm. And I said, well, even one glass of wine. He goes, yeah, like I want to loosen up or I want to do this or, you know, I want to be slightly different. It's because I don't like who I am at that moment. And I thought, okay, well, and that's always stuck with me, you know, and, um, people can be looser and freer with it or, or whatever. And it's just enjoyable. Like it feels good, you know, but I don't know. Most of the formative things in my life have been things that don't feel good. You know, like that's agree. where you get the best. The worse it feels, the, the more rewarding it seems yeah. to be or the, the more challenging. And I think booze, and I don't have a problem with people drinking. Seriously, I don't. But for me personally, I feel like it's an easy way. It's just, it's too easy. And in some ways I feel like it's cheating. Like, it, cause you don't get to fully experience what's going on, what the good and the bad. And it, it kind of dulls you. And I think, or it dulls me. And I think it's kind of, it's almost dishonest to myself to not be able to fully experience good and bad just on their own terms. Yeah. I mean, I want to be here for this, you know, like, I don't want to be like, I forgot what happened, you know, last night or, or whatever. Or I, I don't know if I should have said that, you know, and you don't have an out when you don't drink. You can't be like. I'm sorry I said all those insulting things about your wife. I had, you know, I ate too many uh, onion rings. You know, it's like, you know, if you don't drink, you don't have that as an excuse. You're like, I'm sorry I said all those things about your wife. I'm a jerk. You yeah. Know? Then so, that's, I'll own it. You yeah. either own it or you fully apologize, yeah. you know? Um, so do you feel like you can relax, though? Because I think a lot of people, that's what it's like this uh, sort of punctuation mark where they're like, Psh, open a beer. Now I'm not working for the rest of the day. I'm relaxing. You know, and that's what it was for me. There was a passage in your book where you're talking about where you said that I haven't re- been able to relax in, in so long, um, but just because you can't you can't indulge in alcohol. And I found that I have this urge that I want to relax all the time, that I need to rest, that this and that. And I think of it like I'm driving a car and the car pulls to the right, pulls to the right. And that's my urge to need to rest. But every time I rest, it does nothing good for me. <laughs> All it does is make me either anxious or, or I feel like I wasted time, this and that. And so I, I don't know why I have the urge. Cause it's, it's not good for me. I should have the urge to go as far as I can. Cause that makes me better. And so, like this morning, I woke. I had stayed up all night with the baby and all that, and I just wanted to rest. I wanted to sleep. But I got out. I went running, and I did a bunch of burpees, and I took a cold shower, and now ready to go. Yeah. But I didn't want to do that, you know? Yeah, I have a I have a theory or a, a system of classification of people. There's soakers and there's non-soakers, you know? And you have friends who, are, who say stuff like, oh, we should go to this hot springs. And I'm, I'm always kind of going, eh, I'm good. I, just, no. I don't really want to sit around. <laughs> And my, my girlfriend and I talk about that all the time. And, you know, I go out and I run trail run for four or five, eight hours, yeah. you know, and 
I'm like, that is, that's me relaxing. It is. I don't listen to music. I don't do anything. I get out there and it's like, it's this active relaxing, but yeah, sitting around, you just start to feel itchy. You're like, mm. but I think, you do know you have what? the urge though? Do you want to sit around? No. See, I yeah, do. See, not I, at all. Oh, you're, you do? you're more enlightened. Okay. Well, I do on the surface. It's just, uh, it's a, um, unconscious urge. And then yeah. once I catch it, I'm like, no, I don't. And my wife's very helpful with that too. It's like, get out and go running. <laughs> But I mean, she, she, and that's probably helped me a lot with that, but it's, it's the strangest thing, but yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't, yeah. I, maybe I want to relax, but I don't need to relax. Yeah. And I, but I think like, you know, whatever it is, substances are that for a lot of people, you know, if it's weed or, or alcohol or whatever it is people do, you know, I think that helps them get there. And I don't know who's going to live longer, me or somebody who drinks two beers a night, but you know, whatever to each his own. I just like, can't do it. So yeah, I don't. That's this idea of living, living long. I think that's a silly thing because I, my hero is Theodore Roosevelt and he died at age 60. He called it when he was like 20. He, he said, I'll, I'll die when I'm 60, but he filled up the life, died at age 60 because he just wore himself out. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, I mean, I'd rather, I'd, I'd give up 10 years, no question to have done the, the stuff that I'm proud of doing, yeah. running, climbing mountains, all that kind of stuff. I'd pay 10 years for that huh. versus not doing it. Yeah. Yeah, what about like eating bacon every single day? I think that's I think that's where you're trading the ten years in, right? Yeah, I could give or up like, bacon. I like you know, bacon. Like things like that, I yeah. think is where it's gonna you know, inflammatory foods and whatever, you know. Well, so speaking of the not needing to rest, you the your recent film, How to Run a Hundred Miles, which is awesome. We were talking about it before it started recording app. I'm into that stuff and I've watched all the movies and, and yours is the best. I loved it. But <laughs> so when I do those races, it carries over into regular life because like when I think I'm tired, like, oh, I need to rest because I got up at six this morning. I think to hour 30 of the run rabbit run when I still had it, I don't know how many more miles ago and I did it. And so I think, no, I don't need to rest. So can you, how have these sports in the mountains kind of translated into, how, how do they translate into real life and make your, your, your regular, I shouldn't say real life, your life not in the mountains uh more effective or more um enjoyable more rich uh like i think number one i just hate exercising so the signing up for a big race or some sort of thing like that makes me get out and exercise out of fear um because if i'm just like if i don't have anything big like that on the horizon i'll just sit down does it have to scare you does the goal have to scare you i think so that's how i am it's just a little bit you know i i just called a buddy a couple of days ago and said, Hey, I'm going to be in Flagstaff, uh, you know, next week, do you want to try to do the rim to rim to rim, which is it's like 48 miles and 10,000 feet of elevation gain. And he goes down bottom of grand Canyon up the other side, touch the other side, go back down. Come yeah. Back down. Yeah. And I've always wanted to do it. I just never thought about making a special trip, but I was going to be there. So I thought, Oh, that's true. And he said, yes. I'm like, okay, well I got to go try to see if I'm in shape for this. <laughs> just went on a pretty meat grinder of a trail run on Sunday. Like, okay, I'll be okay. Yeah. You know, but you know, you want to, you want to have that time on your feet, you know, running or whatever. So number one, that's helped me stay in shape. Cause otherwise like, I mean, I like donuts and pizza and me all that stuff, you know, just, you know, that, that helps. But, um, I think, you know, when we put out that film, um, people would ask, uh, Jason, uh, the guy who the film, to me, the film is about, I guess it's about us, but you know, how did this change your life? And I think well, it didn't change his life at all. It just was like more proof of concept for him. You know, mm-hmm. persistence is, you know, 
an unbelievable thing and it can enable you to accomplish big things. And also that you're capable of so much more than you think you are. You know, you don't, you don't practice doing a hundred mile race by going out and running a hundred miles beforehand. You know, you get to like 50, maybe 60 and you think, okay, we'll see what happens on race day as, as you know. Um, and just to see where you go in those moments and how much, how hard you hit bottom and how you have to pull yourself out really helps. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I think it, all those things have taught me that I'm capable of a lot more than I think I am. Mm -hmm. Um, which is what a lot of people who do ultras would tell you. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's an interesting, I don't feel like I'm doing a great job. No, I think that's, question. I agree with all that. I think that's, and, and so in your book, there's, there's a scene where you're climbing the third flat iron without a rope and then you get to the top. And you were, I think you were kind of hoping for, for some answer to your, your challenge at the time to be at the top. But you were, the, the line after that was that maybe the, the goal is actually the process or something along those lines about the, the important part of climbing or any of these hardcore mountain sports being the process. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to appreciate the process? Cause it, again, it seems like we're similar in that we're very goal oriented. Like you got to, I, I have to sign up for a race or I'm on exercise. And so, but the reality is when you get to the race, that's kind of, that's not all that big a deal. Cause you've the training is what's hard. And so can you talk a little bit about that, about just process and maybe even in how that affects your writing as well? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's funny. My girlfriend's in the middle of doing some edits on a book project she has. And, um, she's, it's a really f uh, mentally fatiguing for her. It's mm -hmm. like she signed with an agent and the agent said, you know, here's your manuscript back. I, here's a few notes I had, but she has to dig really deep and try to figure out how to reconstruct dialogue. And it's really hard. And she's like, I put in, you know, a nine hour day and I only got through, I wrote 3000 words and I'm only through like 10% of her edits. And wow. I said, you know, like this is really actually the magic part of this whole thing. You know, you're not ever going to remember going out and, you know, touring and talking to people about the book and people are going to come up to you and tell you they love it. And you're going to be like, Oh, thank you. And it's kind of awkward. And then, you know, you'll get some crappy Amazon reviews or whatever. <laughs> like while you're making the thing is the most special magical time, you know, even though it feels like such a grind and you know it just feels like work and you're not sure anything's happening but that's when it's really happening and you know i think if you asked mountaineers or ultra runners or anybody who does anything that's like that sort of summit slash goal oriented they they don't remember that moment of finishing so much as like what they what they battled through mm -hmm. um and i think i never think about what it was like on top of a certain climb i think about the move that scared the shit out of me and I had to get through it to, to, you know, to finish the climb or whatever. Um, and those are, those are the interesting things to me, I guess. You remember the moments on the side of the climb where you're just sitting there belaying and it's quiet and like maybe there's some birds flying around and you're watching the colors change in the valley below. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I've never I've never been scared of the work involved in any of the creative work or any of the things I've done in the outdoors. I'm not really sure where that comes from, but you know, you think it's, if you think about somebody's creative life, you're like, Oh, well they just sit around and doodle or like make these, you know, great films or whatever. 
or write books, but like there's so much of it that is such a grind, you know, I'm like trying to put together a collection of all my blogs, uh, of the last seven years or not all of them, just like 75, 80 of them. So the first thing I had to do was build a spreadsheet of what I thought were the best mm-hmm. ones. And now I'm going through and I'm like, well, these should all probably have an illustration. And you're just like, I'm doing the spreadsheet work. I'm doing the same stuff that people are doing in their offices going, I hate this job. And I'm like, I hate my job too. You know, <laughs> like, like it's not that much different. Um, so I've always believed in the process, you know, and you just, you believe in the goal and the process is just what you pay, you know, to get there. Yeah, I guess. So speaking of the blog, can you talk a little bit about semi rad and just how that, how that started? Cause I think that's a super interesting story. Yeah. Um, so I had worked a little bit in the outdoor industry, worked at a nonprofit called big city mountaineers. I interviewed the executive director, new, new executive oh, okay. director. Yeah. Uh, Brian. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I worked there from 2008 to two th- early 2011 and okay. I left in 2011 and I got this job actually writing, uh, advertising copy or marketing copy for IBM, mm-hmm. uh, from home. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm just gonna be sitting at home working for IBM. Like it was a great job. Like the pay was amazing. I had like dental insurance, <laughs> <laughs> which is like for a dirt bag. You're, you're like, it's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, and I didn't want to be so distanced from like sort of the outdoor world. So I thought, you know, I got all these story ideas that magazines will never publish, you know, where I'll be like, Hey, you know, it'd be funny. Like send that to a magazine editor. And they're like, That's, no, we don't do that. That's terrible. You know? And, and, uh, so I thought, well, I'll just start putting them out there myself. And I, I made a goal to write one blog a week for however long it took for something to happen or for me to, to hate it, you know? So I bought a URL for 15 bucks and I bought a, bought a theme for 30 bucks or something like that. And I started putting stuff out every week and, um, it was just whatever I wanted to write. And I got, you know, the first month I got like 2000 page views, which was, I thought that's, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. You know? Like, and, uh, I was just putting it out there on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, whatever people liked it or whatever. And it started making its way around a little bit and maybe three or four months into it, Steve Casmiro from adventure journal, uh, the, which was now, which was at that time, just a website is now a, a print journal, uh, saw my stuff. And he saw one of the articles and said, Hey, I'd like to run some of your stuff on adventure journal. I'll link back to you. You know, how's that sound? And I thought, Oh, that sounds fantastic. So that helped me start building an audience. And then within a couple years, I think I did it for two years for basically free. And then outdoor research came on as a sponsor, which at the time I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to get paid to do this. It's yep. fantastic. And they have literally never in 1345, almost this is the fifth year have never said, we think you should stop doing the, the blank or that one was a little out there. Let's that's impressive. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And I've done a lot of work for them, uh, in different capacities. Um, in addition to that, but it's been this great relationship that really, I told him last year, I was like, you know, are you guys, do you want to come on for another year? And I said, you know, look, if, if you guys stop sponsoring this, it pretty much goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, after a couple of years, people were sort of noticing and it was actually started getting me other work, you know, mm-hmm. and Steve started paying me for the stuff he was reprinting. So it became a sort of business. And, um, you know, I think, uh, maybe three years into it, climbing magazine asked me if I wanted to write a column, a monthly column. And I said, sure. What do you want to call it? And they said, Oh, I think we'll just call it semi-rad. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Um, so it went from, you know, Oh, magazines won't publish my stuff. I'm just going to do my own thing to, Oh, now magazines want that stuff. And as of last July outside magazine has been 
um, syndicating the blogs. So every week they just take what I write, put it on their website, they pay me for it, and it's called semi rad, which destroys your search engine optimization. Yeah. But I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never really been a big, you know proponent i've never really understood it and I'm like ah, whatever that's fine paycheck's great so like that that became you know i've written two articles for outside ever and it's you know when you start coming up you know when you're in journalism school you're like i want to write for outside magazine and national geographic and um i just I was never really that great at pitching stuff and then getting feature stories mm-hmm. and then doing all the edits back and forth and now it's a situation where they literally don't touch what i write they just put it out there i'm like Okay, fantastic. And I get a check every month. I'm like, this is the life, you know. Like, That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so. I think, but one thing I think needs to be noted is, while, you know, through that whole series of events from the very beginning until present day, you're still cranking out articles on a consistent basis and the work is still happening. <laughs> and so can you, can you talk a little bit just about how, in order to make it or the need for just that, that grinding mentality that you've had and, and how that is, um, kind of, I guess that there are a lot of talented writers out there, but I think there, there are not as many or very few who are talented and willing to work as hard as needed. So can you just talk about how that, that work ethic is your competitive advantage almost? Yeah. Well, I, there's a, I don't know if you've ever heard, there's a Freakonomics episode called uh, a podcast episode called, um, how to be great at just about anything. Have you ever listened to this? No, I need to. It's amazing. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, but they, you know, they go into like sort of research based, like, is there really such a thing as talent? Mm -hmm. And yes, there's like innate talent. Um, but basically the, the conclusion is according to a few researchers that talent is mostly just hard work, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people miss. You know, they see you when you like are at the, you know, what they see is successful, you know, but they don't see, you know, like that's like somebody explained it to me as an iceberg. Like you just see the top part of it and you don't see that bottom, all that work they put in to get there. You know, you don't just like wake up and you're like, holy shit, I'm on American Idol. I better nail this. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know how to sing by the time you get there. It's not this lucky, you know, we want to believe in that American dream thing where you're like, oh yeah, I was just waiting tables at this restaurant in LA and somebody thought I was beautiful. Now I'm a movie star. It's like, that doesn't happen. Yep. (laughs) You got to know how to act, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't, I've my, I always thought, you know, as a writer, I would, I would just have a big break someday and like, there'd be this, I'd get a book deal and then I'd be huge. And then it would be like, you know, then I'd be famous and rich or whatever. Maybe not even rich, maybe just like enough to pay a mortgage or something. And it's never happened. So like, I mean, like I've gotten, you know, I sell a handful of books every month, you know, some self-published, some published with publishers and enough people visit my blog and I sell some t-shirts that I've designed and I do enough of this work that it like comes together and pays for some stuff. But I still, I mean, I don't really have a nice car or anything, you know, like, but I enjoy the, I, I enjoy the grind. I don't, the process goes back to that. And there's a lot of people like I'm friends with who do big creative projects. Like Kevin Fidarko will just do one book for like two years or whatever, a year and a half or whatever. And that's all he does. He goes into the office and, um, just self, he just tortures himself. And does it kick his ass? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I couldn't imagine it, that. No. Emerald Miles is one of my favorite books. Yeah. I could not, I don't understand how somebody could write that. Yeah, well, it's, if you, if you interview him sometime, you should, if you interview I'd him, love you'll, to. you'll get it. He's like, and that's, I mean, Kevin's like, 
Ivy League, Oxford. That's his brain. You know, he worked for Time Magazine for a long time. And he goes in and he crushes out like these 500 beautiful words a day or whatever it is he comes up with. Or maybe some days it's 200 or something. He does that for a year or two and then he gets a great book out of it. And I would love to do that. But I've, you know, with changing media needs, I guess. I don't know if I believe in that enough to try to like put a whole year into it, nor do I have the publishing contract. So instead it's more like, Oh, I'm going to do a blog every week for a year and see if I can get some money for it eventually. And people don't, you know, they don't go back and be like, Oh, you've been working on this for two years. Let's pay you for that stuff too. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. You know, you're like, they're like, Oh, we'll give you X hundred dollars per month. And you know, you can keep doing your blog. And it's like, okay, great. I'll keep doing the blog then. Um, and I've always believed in sort of the giving it away until somebody pays you for it concept. I think that's, works. I think that's really cool because the, you know, when you look at creative, the creative world, there's one school of thought that says, don't do anything unless you get paid. And then there's another kind of line of thinking that you need to grab one, one thing and specialize. Like if you're a photographer, don't do anything else except photography. But what I think is cool about you is you don't, you haven't followed that that logic. I mean, you've given away a lot of stuff for free and it's paid off. And then you've, um, you do a lot of different things. You hustle, you know, you've got, you make films, you write, you've got, you, you sell, you know, funny gear on your website. You write, you draw funny cartoons. I mean, you've got all these different things you do. So why do you think that's, why do you think people give the advice that you need to really focus in when it's obviously maybe some people do, but, but you haven't followed that and it's worked out very well. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe it has. I don't know. Uh, I feel like we'd be sitting in a bigger, bigger house right now. I like but, this place, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when, you, when you're running two businesses out of here, and like you should, like our our biggest closet is literally filled to the top with gear. You should so. get a few uh, border collies to run. Yeah, around. exactly. Right. Yeah, <laughs> two golden retrievers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's 100 percent like the best thing to do. You know, I think I've tried to just like this has been my way to avoid a real job in, by doing creative work. Um, and I like it. I'd love to not have to do some things some weeks and just be like, ah, I want to work on a novel or something, you know, but, uh, things tend to take over your life. And if you can keep the, the baseline gig going while you do that, like mm -hmm. the, the film, how to run a hundred miles. I mean, I had to train for it and run a, a hundred mile ultra marathon. Not only that, I shot probably 40% of what's actually in the film, but I like, you know, I'm not really, I'm not a cinematographer. So it requires a lot of like, Oh, we need to do that again. I forgot to turn the microphone on. I'm glad to see the pros do that because that's what oh, we were talking about before. Like, I don't know how any of this equipment works and here we are, but yeah, I think that's how are you going to learn? That's the only way to learn. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who would say the same thing, but, um, you know, shoot and reshoot that. Stuff. I don't know how much footage we ended up not using, but it's heartbreaking, you know, like how many hours I put into that. And then in the end I was like, I might as well tally up and see if I made any money on that film. And I was like, Oh gosh. Oh, well, <laughs> at least I'm happy with the film. Like, people seem to like it a little bit, you know, enough. You they know, love you, when I looked, it had well over 2 million views. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the real deal, man. It's, it's cool. And I, you know, there's a quote that I read somewhere on, it was a guest post on Tim Ferriss's blog by some other guy. And he said, people who concentrate on anything, but making the best thing rarely make the best thing, you know? So if you go into it and you're like, well, I need to make $18,000 on this movie or it's not worth it to me. You know, that, that would have cost that would have 
the movie would have sucked, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like, this is a thank you card to one of my best friends in the whole world. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be like, sorry, dude, we ran out of hours, mm-hmm. you know, could have been better, but you know, I got other stuff going on. So that kind of stuff really takes over your life. Um, but I kept, you know, you have to keep doing your blog the whole time you're doing it. So yeah, once again, that blog yeah. is going the whole time in the background as you're yeah. doing all these other, um, you know, writing assignments, you've, you've written six books, right? I think eight, eight. Yeah. Holy cow. Including like a cookbook I co-authored and yeah, I always joke like one of them will start selling really well one of these days and I won't have to work as hard. (laughs) So are you working as hard now as you did say five years ago? Um, yeah, I think, I think harder probably at this point, like five years ago I was living in my van. So I was able to just like, it was really inefficient, you know, like now I get a, like my commute is from the bedroom to that table right there, Mm -hmm. which is like 20 feet, you know, and you're like, okay, here we go. You know? Um, so yeah, I think you're, you're still hustling as hard. You don't have to like five years ago, I was really pitching like people a lot, like, Hey, you should let me do this for you. Now I can kind of be like, let a few opportunities come my way, whether they're from other creative friends or like a brand or something like that and say, Oh yeah, I would, that would be fun. Sure. I'll do that. So you're doing less of the pitching to people. You still have to, um, but you know, you have a publisher and it's easier to be like, Hey, I was thinking about this idea. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And they're like, nah, or, <laughs> or yeah, well write a proposal and we'll see, you know, it's not like you're doing that cold calling. I want to write a book about blank. My name's Brendan. I, you know, I'm yeah. doing this. So, so it's a little easier in that respect, but, um, yeah, I, I, we were talking about, I think I default to work, you know, a lot of some people default to joy or exercise or something, but like, if I'm not doing anything, I go back to like, okay, what else can I make? You know, mm-hmm. um, which is fun. So yeah. what does your daily routine look like? I mean, when you being, being here, you could, you could do whatever the hell you wanted all day. Do you, do you have a pretty strict, strict schedule that you force on yourself or is it more work on what you need to, when you need to? Yeah. Uh, well, like my blog, I have to have to outside by Tuesday night at midnight. So the early part of the week, I'm, you know, yesterday I like, paced around the apartment, um, made a lot of coffee, cooked, you know, swept the floor while I was trying to write like 500 words about, which is a joke. It's a joke blog about, uh, palatial mountain getaway for sale. And it's a tent. Um, and I just was like, like I wrote it like three or four different times. I'm like, this is just not as funny. Like it's funny as a concept, but it's like, it could just be a caption, you know? So like that, that took up eight hours, you know, or whatever of my day. And, you know, which is fine at this point, the blog makes enough money where I can say that is okay. If I spend two days working on this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, but I want to get it done so I can move on the mental energy to move on to something else. Um, Do you procrastinate? I mean, what's the difference between procrastination and the creative process? Really? (laughs) Like, Let's be honest here. And, you know, I was just thinking yesterday, I was running around my neighborhood because I'm trying to like get in shape or whatever. And I was like, I didn't have my phone with me and I'm supposed to give a graduation speech, uh, at the end of May which, oh, really? for a local high school, which is like my dream come true. And I was like thinking of all these things to say, and I'm like, Oh my God, I should have my phone so I could write this stuff down. And like, and I'm like, why don't I just write my blog while walking laps around the park over here? Like uh-huh. that's when all the good stuff comes. You know, I could just type it into my phone instead of <laughs> standing here going, Ugh, and like eating, like making more toast and getting fat and like, you know, oh, yeah. I should just do that. But and there, there's no really daily routine, but there's like things that happen every, um, 
every month, you know, I have to like, it's a lot of stuff people probably wouldn't expect. Usually I sit down in the morning and I'll try to draw uh, a sketch for Instagram, Mm -hmm. um, three days a week, minimum, sometimes more. The one to this morning was really hilarious. Oh, did you Lionel? <laughs> I was trying to like, so I don't draw very well. So I trace. So Lionel Richie, very easy to trace. Adele, really hard to trace. I was, I was like, how does he know what Adele looks like? And can, how can he draw it? Oh my God. I was like, last night I was, he, I was sitting here till like one in the morning and you know, Hillary was here and I'm like, man, I'm trying to trace Adele's album cover, but her hair is all cut off and I'm trying to draw it. And I'm like, this looks terrible. Nobody's going to know that's Adele. And so I, I'm like going through all these photos of Adele on Google. Like I just looked over and I go, I work so hard. And she just starts laughing. I'm like, like, what are we doing here? Like this is, you call this work for sure. And you know, I have gotten like paid paying, um, illustration clients, which I think is hilarious, but you know, so that's part of a business too. And eventually I would like to put all those sketches or a lot of them, the best ones into a book. But like right now it's just like me goofing around on Instagram, you know, it's really funny, man. Anything with Lionel Richie, I'm, I'm all about. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I was, I like was Googling photos of him and he's, I think he's almost 70. He's gotta be. He aged, he's aging really well. Like I looked at the current photos of him. I'm like, damn, Lionel Richie. I hope I look that good. You know, if I get to be, you know, 70 or 67 or whatever he is, you know, like, wow, you know, impressive. So yeah, he's, I love that guy, man. Dancing on the ceiling. Remember that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That was like one of my first MTV experiences. Me too. Like a six or seven year old. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, so in your, your, the other book I read of yours this past weekend, um, make it till you make it. Yeah. I thought it was great. Super easy read. Huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, you could read it, you know, 50 times and get something new out of it. Um, there's one part in there where it says to exhale creative work, you need to inhale creative work. So who do you inhale? Who, who do you look to for inspiration? I make books specifically. Books or, or films or just creatives in general. I still love going to the the movies. Um, you know, we live pretty close to both the indie theaters in Denver. And like, I'm always like, I hate to be that boring guy. Who's like, let's go on a date. Let's go to a movie and dinner. But I love going to the movies still. Uh, but like last night we went to a jazz jam at the Meadowlark bar, which starts at like 10 15, which is pretty late for me. Oh, good. But we're sitting there and these, yeah. And these young guys are just like, just crushing it out. And I'm like, man, this is really great. And like, I just having these thoughts, I'm trying to write a longer piece about, um, the idea of being funny, uh, mm-hmm. sort of in life and sort of kind of like where it has come from for me, which is sort of my uncles and my dad and, you know, different things you experience without throughout life and your funny friends, you know, and how they influence you. And I was just thinking, watching this drummer last night and I was like, God, this guy's having so much fun. And like literally this entire, all this noise is just an extension of his body. He's mm-hmm. so familiar with this drum kit. And like, it's like, he's not even thinking, he's just looking at the bass player, just like, you know, and it's, it's so amazing to watch. And I think, God, what would it be like to be that good at something? Like, and I think, well, if you had stopped like trying to be funny, you know, at like age 10 and just actually focused on a musical instrument, maybe you'd be that good at this point, you know, <laughs> like a trumpet or something, but instead you're just like trying to be funny all the time. So you know, so that was a, that was just this thought I had while just like sitting here watching this guy and like, well, that works, you know, and like, that's where you get your creative stuff is why watching other people's, you know, and I go to a lot of outdoor film festivals as well. Mm -hmm. Five point mountain film. Um, a lot of times to show movies now, but like a few years ago it was like to get, 
you know, I was sitting at the five point film festival in Carbondale going, I want to make something for this somehow. I don't even know how that works. When you think back on that, is there a certain film that you saw that you're like, man, that's, that's awesome. Or you saw it and you're like, I could do that. It's really good, but I could do that. I usually never think I could do that. Really? Unless it's it's a really bad film. (laughs) I could have done that, you know, a film script. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Or yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people who were watching films five or six years ago would point to Mickey Smith's dark side of the lens. Mm-hmm. He's a, the Irish surf photographer. Oh yeah. I saw that. Yeah. That it's really beautiful. Good. And you definitely don't think I could do that, but it's a short film. It's this really, you know, the, the voiceover is beautiful, but it's also this, his voice given, you know, delivering the voiceover is kind of like, it's no big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. And you know, to make things look easy, you have to put in a lot of hard work, but, but it was this incredible film and you're like, I still go back to it. I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's a, yeah. um, I'd forgotten about that one, but I, I clearly remember that. And yeah. I don't know why I do, but I remember thinking that's, that was oh. pretty impressive. Yeah. And, uh, like the first thing I ever did was a voiceover, um, that I just was talking to my friend Fitz as we were, we're like, um, doing this little free solo climb, uh, in Salt Lake. We skipped out in the afternoon of the outdoor retailer trade show and, Fitz call. Yeah. And, uh, you should interview him too. He's, I'd love to, I've been yeah. listening to his stuff since the very beginning. Yeah. Started in a closet I know. in yeah, Seattle. I, like, yeah. Talk about early recordings, man. If you go back and listen to like the mono board. Oh yeah. Those early episodes of the dirtbag diaries there. You're like, wow. Yeah. I can't believe this. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, yeah. I remember I used to download them and then download them on the computer, transfer them to my iPod and then listen to them. Right. I had, I had the, like, the tape deck that went into the tape player on my truck. <laughs> And I'd listen oh, to them. Yeah. I, yeah. I was all, I love those things, man. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. They're fantastic. But I just said, yeah, I've been writing this. I got this essay in my head about things that inspire me. And he goes, well, send, oh, he, he emailed me like four days later after I got back to Denver and he goes, send me that essay. And I was literally sitting in the Denver bicycle cafe here going, shit, I guess I better write that. Now. It was, <laughs> it was just like a couple notes I'd put in my phone and I sat down and hammered it out. I was like, shit, I hope this works. And it became a film voiceover um, in one best short mountain film at Banff. Which one is that? It's called 35. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've it's like that. impossible to Google, you know, I've seen it. It's on your, it, you have it on your website. Though, right? Yeah. 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 And I saw it when it came out. I remember that. Yeah. And he, you know, he, they had footage from, and they didn't know what they were going to do with it from this guy, Derek's 35th birthday party. Um, so when I wrote it, I think I was 33. Um, but you know, people still ta- tell me that they saw that or whatever. And, there's a guy at one of my book signings who, who said, I've watched that film over 50 times. I have really? it on my phone right now. I make my wife watch it. <laughs> He's this great guy, Wayne, who lives in LA and is a, like a big hiker and stuff. And so cool to connect with him I'm like that. Um, but that was like the first thing I did. I'm like, okay. And you just start to learn a little bit more every time. I'm like, okay, maybe I could shoot a little bit or maybe I could learn how to edit. And we were talking about this yeah. a little bit before we started recording, but do you, do you look back at your old work? Do you, I mean, you were talking about revisiting the blog to put together, but do you look back at it? And if you do, what do you think? Oh, I think it all sucks. Right. Okay. Like you're like, and you need to, I think I need to like learn to, you know, respect that it was a time in my life. And that was like, not as maybe not as good. Well, the thing is, if you can get your head around it, that should be a really good thing. It would be awful if you look back at stuff five years ago and you're like, this is awesome. This is exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or, or I was so much better, you know, like I <laughs> fell off, you know, which like as a musician, you probably are like, can you imagine just being like having a huge hit when you're like 26 and then like five years later, you're like, I got to get that magic back. That's why they all go happens. crazy. 
Yeah, that'd be tough. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I heard this podcast with Dave Eggers when I was, gosh, was several years ago, but his book, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, I thought was so great when I read it in like 2001, you know, I was like, wanted to be a writer and I thought, I just thought, oh my gosh, she can be vulnerable and, uh, you know, neurotic and all these things like this is amazing. And I heard him talk about it on a podcast and he's like, Oh, I hate that book. It's so terrible. <laughs> Say that to the house. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He hates that book. And, um, you know, a lady brought a copy of my first self-published book up to me at a book signing that I was doing for another book, uh, actually in Jackson in January. And she goes, I love this book. This is my favorite book. And I go, and I said something along the lines of like, Oh God. Yeah. That was, I didn't say I hate that book. Yeah. I said something like, Oh yeah, it's, it's sort of embarrassing. I'm like, Oh yeah, that was a long time ago or whatever. And, and I thought, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. I should have just been like, thank you very much that I'm really glad it. Well, that's the weird yeah, thing is because but, you're putting this stuff out and then it becomes somebody else's thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not really yours anymore at that point. I mean, yeah. it's hers and it's her experience, which I, I would imagine that's, very hard to get your head around. Yeah. Well, until you're like reading bad reviews on like Amazon or Goodreads and people are like, I thought there was going to be way more rock climbing in this book. I'm like, man, based on people. what? You yeah. Know, like, yeah. But people will bring their own expectations to what you're doing, you know? And um, do you look at reviews? I guess so. Oh yeah. It's, it's actually like I've gone through this, you know, at first I put out a self-published book and I was like, man, this is great. And the way it goes is like for the first few months you get mostly positive reviews and then like, you're getting into that like second circle of people who are buying it and they're like, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, and that happens with every creative project I've done, you know, where like, like our film, you know, got out there and a lot of people loved it. Who didn't like, like, you can't really even take any of this stuff on the internet seriously, but I just don't understand. First of all, I understand if you don't like it, turn it off and go do something else. Why are you going to spend all this energy writing a dim (laughs) review? I know. Well, I have so many thoughts on that. You know, it's just like, it's like, well, I think they don't understand, you know, people for one thing when they're doing that, don't really think about like, how would this feel if I were on the other end, you know, or like, cause I think, oh, you know, sorry, I put, you know, 2000 hours into this piece of free content that you didn't pay for. And it's just and infuriated you. Well, and, and then you take like 30 seconds and write this review that's like, really hurtful or whatever. And, and mostly I'm just like, whatever, man, <laughs> but you, th- you think about it and like, was that, you know, was that person You're like, oh, okay, here's my contribution. Like this art that I slaved away on, not slaved away. You just worked on it really hard or gave a lot of a big piece of your life to it. And you know, here's your review. Like, yeah, mm, whatever, man, you know, like, I don't know, but yeah, people, they'll be like, you know, the film is called how to run a hundred miles and people, I just read one today. It was like, these guys hardly ran at all. <laughs> like, well, we didn't actually tape the entire race. I mean, we could go through it. Yeah. We definitely didn't run the whole thing. We probably didn't even run 60% of it, but we did run a lot, which is probably more than you've run Yeah, like, in the last three years combined. Yeah. Or people were, some guy was like, who cares? Anyone can run a hundred miles. You should, you know, uh, look up these political figures from the middle East and blah, 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 and educate yourselves. And I thought, well, there's, that's a big left turn there. Okay. All right. You know? Yeah. We'll go with that. Cool. Yeah. So sorry. I apologize. So it's bizarre. <laughs> it, 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 if you ever think about it, you're like, if I was in a room and we just showed this movie and people were just yelling these things, you'd be like, Holy shit, this is <laughs> crazy. Riot. Yeah. Cause they would never say that stuff in person. And you know, I like, I shut off comments on my blog. Jeez, over a year ago. I oh, think. you did? That's yeah. smart. And you know, I was it, there. It was nice. There were a few 
discussions happening between people in the comments section and like you get some nice positive stuff and but you know there was like three or four a year they were just like super negative you know and like i don't need to put up with this shit you know like this isn't an internet forum this is like if you like it cool you know if you hate it send me an email you know have yeah. grow a pair and like you know own up to it but this like anonymous comment bullshit i just like NPR did away with comments. Outside. I think they're all going away. Yeah, it's like what are we what are we providing a platform for these people for? You know, like, when I lived in Boulder, the only reason I'd look at the Daily Camera website was because of the comments. <laughs> it was like a comedy. She was like a Saturday yeah. Night Live skit, and uh, then they cut off the comments, and I've never looked at it since. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you moved, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's an interesting thing, and I think the internet is going through such a you know you're like it's it's changing, and it's always gonna it's it's such a dynamic environment and you know what you were doing in the internet comments like five years ago is different than it is now or whatever and i always just said you know like internet comments are like the basement of civilization and Mm -hmm. youtube comments are the basement of the basement you know it's like (laughs) it's like the most ignorant shit for brains people with like just nothing but hate in their hearts like getting on there and you know it's like whatever man like this is your contribution today like this is what you're doing with your life yeah it's very very interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, one more question about social media. How do you manage that? Cause you've got, you've got a serious following, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever like truly felt addicted to anything except my phone. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have an urge to look at it and I don't want to look at it. But like first thing in the morning, one of the first things I think of every morning is I need to check my email and I don't want to check my email. And so I would think, and I, my, my, you know, income is not really related at all to social media, whereas you've got a, quite a following of, of people who read your stuff and watch your films. So how do you manage that without letting it take over your life? Mm. But I don't really, I, there's, I think now at this point, you know, face, people are not finding my stuff through Facebook through my, like the semi-red Facebook page anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's barely a thing, you know, like, and if people are commenting on that, they're usually just tagging other people. So they can see it. Yeah. yeah, And the only reason I monitor it at all is there occasionally is something like very negative or something that's just like hurtful towards not, maybe not me or some, but somebody I wrote about or something like that, where it's just like, nah, get out of here. What are you doing? You know? And I'll just block somebody or whatever. And, um, Instagram's the same thing or it's mostly people tagging each other. Um, but occasionally there's somebody who's like, you know, says something really off color, like racist or whatever. And I'm like, this is not, I'm not even like talking about that, you know? And, and I'll just delete it and block. I blocked a guy one time cause he said a tribe called quest was boring. I thought, get him out of here. Your values, You're out. sir. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. So long. It's like, I don't <laughs> know. Cross the line. I don't sir. know if they ever figured that out or, um, occasionally people will tag me in things that I have nothing to do with where I'm like, what are you doing? I'm not part of your product launch. You know, like <laughs> you didn't even send me anything like block, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just, I don't really have a strategy. I try to respond to most people's messages on Instagram, um, and stuff, but, and Twitter, but it's a lot to keep up with. It is. Know, it like, could, oh, it could take over your life. Yeah. Um, so one more kind of big subject and then I'll, we can move on to some of the faster questions, but I, you know, most of your writing and your films, it's all related to the outdoors, a lot of these outdoor adventures we have are in public lands. And I, I read that you would, you know, you, you had been somewhat outspoken about the need to stand up for these public lands and protect them now that they're, um, being threatened. And I guess they, they've always been threatened, but they're, 
it's in the mainstream now. They're being threatened. Can you just talk a little bit about the importance of public lands and conservation and what that what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, and I would say I haven't even been that outspoken about public lands, um, which is it's hard to believe it's like a partisan issue at this point, but I, uh, I tend to try to stay away from politics as much as possible on what I do, uh, because I don't really want to alienate people on one side or the other. Um, even though I'm I'm very strongly believe in a lot of things, uh, and, you know, vote and support organizations in that, you know, are in line with my beliefs. But I mean, what would I be doing if there was, you know, public lands? It's like, you know, the reason America is great is because no one owns the majority of the mountains in America. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like one 14 er that is owned privately in yep. Colorado. Right. And I think you pay 300 bucks and you can like climb it a couple weekends a year, maybe, or something like that. And if that's a model for what we're talking about, you know, like for what could happen, that's, that's tragic, you know? Um, but yeah, like I just think we, in the West, we have such a different idea of public lands than anywhere else in America. You know, where I grew up, 72% of the, the land, the ground in Iowa, like surface area is covered in corn and soybeans, right? Wow. Which is amazing. And I, I've also read that it's the most, uh, it has the most roads per square mile of any state in the union. Just checkerboard. Yeah. Which is like, you know, um, interstate highways, uh, state highways. And then I think every, almost every square mile, there's a gravel road sure. for agriculture purposes. Um, but there's an, almost nothing wild there. Like if you want to hunt where I come from, you have to know a friend who has a bunch of farmland and then you go walk out and look for deer. But the same in North Carolina. Right. Yeah. Right. And you're, it's just kind of, um, I mean, there's the topography. There's not that interesting, but you know, you, you wonder what, what happens to those wild places. And I'm a fan of public lands. Like we live a block and a half from a park, which is a city park, you know, and it's, you share it with everybody, including homeless people and people playing volleyball on Saturdays, people getting drunk and like whatever. Um, but it's amazing to just go and be like in nature, literally three minutes from my back door right here. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot more lately. Um, how, how good that is for me. If you've ever read, uh, Florence Williams book, the nature fix. No, but somebody, one of my friends recommended it to me like two days ago. It's fantastic. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Um, and it covers everything from these large scale things. You know, we think of the outdoors a lot of times. I think in the outdoor industry, we think of it as being like, you have a backpack and you're like four or five miles from a trailhead, if not 20 or whatever, or climbing or whatever. But that book really woke me up to how good I have it right here where Mm -hmm. I can just walk and be in this place with like 40 foot tall trees three minutes away. Um, so I think about, thought about that a lot too lately. Um, and you know, I don't want to mow a lawn. I prefer to have the city mow my lawn, which is like right (laughs) over here. So yeah, I don't know if I'd have a career if there was not public, publicly accessible land, you know, you know, of, of, out of a, you know, I think public lands are what make America, America. I mean, there, there are a few other, you know, there, there are other aspects as well, but that is something we have that nobody else really has. Yeah. And I think we're like, you know, right now we say, oh, well, nobody can be on these, nobody can access these national monuments in Utah. And what we're saying is we'd prefer to drill them as opposed to have people just walking around and finding themselves in nature or whatever. But you know, when you look at the the data, those things are not, you know, extractive industries are not around for 
that long, it doesn't really provide that many jobs. What it provides is jobs that are in a masculine sense, really, um, desirable for people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather go work in a mine or do some sort of drilling work than, you know, um, wait tables, you know, to accommodate tourists, you know, which is sucks. But, you know, I think, I think there's a lot in our, in our country that it comes down to masculinity and like what a state it's in right now, sort of crisis, you know, and mm-hmm. like, um, that's part of it. And, you know, once we drill the shit out of these places, we're not really, there's no going back, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like you can be like, ah, it didn't work out so well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, and I really, you know, I'm not like a guy who like is, you know, vegan and doesn't have a car, you know, like I drive and I fly places and stuff. So I understand that we have to make compromises and, and things like that. But, you know, we got to, we have the technology to do other things. Well, I think the debate is healthy. I mean, I, I think it's, it's good that people are getting wound up about it. And I, one thing that I've thought is very positive about this whole debate is that there are all these groups that normally have been at odds, like hunters and mm-hmm. say hikers yeah, or, you know, hunters and bird watchers. But in the, in the end, they all love public lands for their own own reasons. And it even has helped me. I mean, I feel like I've had a pretty good idea of that my, my whole adult life. But like I was in Moab a few weeks ago running and along came somebody in, you know, big souped up, you know, four by four truck. And in the old days, I'd be like, man, why are these guys out here? But I saw it. and I was like, it is so cool that these guys are out here enjoying these public lands and that we're all on the same team. And so I, th- I mean, I, I think it's. If anything, it's building a coalition. And I think it is a nonpartisan issue, really. I think there's a lot of money at stake and people can make it talk. The, the, the extremes on both ends can talk really loud to make it seem partisan. But right. most people are in agreement that it needs to be responsible. I mean, how what responsible equals, may, there may be a little bit of difference there. But yeah, I think most people, it's hard to not be pro-conservation. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's just super hard to make that a priority for people who do not know what it's like to be out in the desert and how quiet it is, you Mm -hmm. know, like, you know, whether you live in, you know, Missouri or New Jersey or whatever, like that is very foreign to a lot of people. So it's not an issue that's at the top of their mind. Like, Oh, Utah looks like Mars. Who cares? Sure. Whatever. Do what you do what you need to do. I don't, you know, if it's good for America, that's good for us. And it doesn't, you know, so I think we're such a, we're very insulated, you know, we're kind of in a bubble of like people who love nature for being nature, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I mean, it's meant everything to me, but to a lot of people, you know, when you're hanging out in New York, like, Oh yeah, I hang out, (laughs) hang out in the desert. Like what? Why would you do that? (laughs) You know, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And those same people are like mobbing central park on Easter Sunday or whatever. And like, you know, everyone's going to the park, you know, it's one of the last open spaces in that city. Um, but yeah, to try to be like, defend public lands. Like what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I'll read that nature fix book. That, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, I see it right there on the yeah. shelf. I, um, yeah, my friend, um, my friend just mentioned that. I think it was yesterday. I followed the author on, on uh, Instagram. Yeah. So, um, well, I've got some quick questions that I ask everybody on the podcast. Yeah. And so we can run through those and then I'll let you get back to cranking away. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, what are your favorite books or books that you recommend to other people about the American West? Oh, about the West. Boy. Um, the Emerald Mile, I think I've bought copies for so many So people. good. Yeah. Um, and I've actually, I actually met Kevin on a raft trip a few years ago and befriended him. Um, 
or at least I, I stop by every time I'm in Flagstaff. So I'll probably have lunch with him next week Nice when I'm there. Uh, fantastic guy. Great book. Great story of like marketing the book, uh, stuff like that. But such a well-written historical book about the Grand Canyon. You know, yeah, it hits on everything. It hits yeah. on history. It hits on, you know, water issues in the West. It, yeah. Adventure. Yep. Super cool. Um, let me look at my bookshelf, actually. Not, uh, not a hundred percent Western, but, um, barbarian days. Oh, that's you one of my that? favorites okay. of all time. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, well... Do you surf? Uh, I've stood up, like, two or three times. Yes, yeah, you surf. Myself. Yeah, right? So That book is amazing. Yeah, and he, like, totally, you know, crushes your dreams of surfing, like, right away. Like, if you haven't been surfing since you're a teenager, you're never going to get yeah, at it. Yeah, you're like, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. But, you know, my friend Alex is the ad- uh, editor at Adventure Cyclist magazine. And, okay. You know, we were messaging back and forth about it, and he goes, I guess that's what you get for, you know, writing for The New Yorker for 30 years. You know, like, that's how... It, and it's so good. And like, I don't care about surfing that much. You That's know? the thing is that everybody yeah. who reads it, I, I recommended it a long time ago. And I said, you know, you don't have to be a surfer. And so many people who have no interest in surfing have read it. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. It really is beautiful writing. That sounds like a cliche and coming from me, I don't even know what it means, but it, it's the kind of something about the way they got rights. It's just amazing. I think the way I would describe it, the best to me is it's compelling it's the, the writing is so good that makes the book compelling, even though, you know, nothing's really going to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like, it's not like there's some foreshadowing at the beginning of the book where, you know, he like drops a, you know, a gem where you're like, Oh, is that going to happen? Or is it not going to happen? You know, with a lot of books. Uh Um, yeah, there really isn't anything that happens. It's just kind of a narrative of his, of his life. And it's not like there's any huge tragedy or huge. It's just kind of cruising around surfing. I mean, interesting stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, Craig Child's Secret Knowledge of Water is another one. I, have not, I haven't even heard of that. Another, have you read any of Craig Child's work? Uh-uh. I think that's probably, I don't know if a lot of people would recommend you start with that, but that's like, it's an awesome book about the desert and water. Okay. Um, and it's just kind of Craig Child's being Craig Child's just beautiful prose and like these wacky sort of adventures. He goes on to find water, like as part of a water survey is part of the book where, he has just his descriptions of finding these fields of potholes full of gallons and gallons of water. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's an amazing book. What about, I see angle of repose over there. Uh, that's, that's Hillary's. Yeah, My she, wife just finished that and cannot stop away. talking about yes, it. Yeah. I haven't exactly. read it. And, yeah. and I'd say, I bet 10 people on this podcast have said that's one of their favorites. Really? I just can't read fiction, man. Oh, um, I just can't do it. I, I Lonesome dove. I love that, but I, I feel like I'm wasting time when I'm reading fiction, mm-hmm. which is I'm getting more and more into it. I mean, are, are you interested in writing though? Like, yes, yeah, I do. And I think it, when I, when you can read good stuff, it makes you a better, much better writer. I think yeah. like your, your rule number 38. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you got to inhale don't, it. Don't read garbage. Yeah. But yeah. Like I think, I think reading fiction is a way better way to look at storytelling for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, because it's funny. I was just going to recommend Peter Heller's books. I've read, uh, Dog stars. I've read all his nonfiction. Kook oh, about okay. surfing. I actually and then haven't read it. I read one where he, it was this first first descent of some big river yeah. in the Himalayas, I okay. think. But several people have told me the dog stars and yeah. then is there something about 
painter. The painter. Yeah. Yeah. I like the painter. Does he live here in Denver? I think he does. Somebody told me he was building a house somewhere, but yeah, I think he lives over by Sloan's Lake if if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, what a legend, man. Like that, the dog stars, I'm not really usually into like post-apocalyptic fiction, but it's mind blowing. All right. And I think the narrator's voice is what really, I must've opened it up and tattered cover here. Something Mm -hmm. was like, I'll read this. You know, it's a sort of gruff voice. It's like, not trying to be a writer at all really and yeah but it's a, it's a mind-blowing book yeah. i need to do i need to make myself read into it i keep getting messages from people telling me i need to read more <laughs> fiction i mean i don't think i've read a fiction book in like five years oh at least yeah. yeah i got really into it a few years ago and like not it'll be the floodgates when i do you know all or nothing. yeah <laughs> the, the best i mean one of my favorite books i've read which is, has nothing to do with the west is uh a brief history of seven killings. That's probably the best book I've read in the last five years. And okay. people love it or they absolutely hate it. It won the Booker prize in like 2012 or 13. Mm-hmm. And it's this, uh, the author uses, I think 72 different narrators to tell a story that lasts, I think 30 years. Holy cow. Yeah. And it's, it's a Jamaican. So like several of the characters speak in like you're right in Jamaican Patois. So you kind of have to like, <laughs> translate what you're doing it it's it's a phenomenal book i've given it to several people or bought it for them and like what'd you think and they're like oh i couldn't finish that like, are you crazy shit. yeah so nobody like literally no one i know has read it I'm like i love that book you know? it's so <laughs> incredible cool. yeah well those are all good a lot of those i had not heard of um do you have a favorite documentary or film favorite documentary or film i always like to interject here and say this is given the fact that Roadhouse is the greatest film of all time. So we're talking, <laughs> about, we're talking about everything other than Roadhouse. Uh, my favorite film of all time is do the right thing. Spike Lee. Is it really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. It's, I, I just went, it was just playing at the Esquire down the street here and they had a professor from, uh, a film professor from the university of Denver uh, show up. And yeah, I actually just bought this t-shirt. This is boycott Sal's on it, which is from the movie. And <laughs> yeah. I like, I can't help myself. And it's like part nostalgia, but part, I just love that movie so much. And I still think it's relevant today in America. And yeah, I bought this shirt and I was like, I put it on. And I'm like, no one is going to know what this means. Like literally no one, you know, and Hillary was just, that's the best yeah. kind of joke. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's so many scenes in it that have so much to do with race and, the Roger Ebert wrote a review of it in 1989 and said, you know, Spike Lee doesn't give you the answers. He gives you more questions, which mm-hmm. I think at the end of the movie, you are not sure what you think. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. did Mookie do the right thing or do I totally not side with him? And he's one of, you know, every character in that movie, you're not sure if you like him or not. You know, mm-hmm. Danny Aiello is a genius in it, but you're like, how many times do you think you've seen it? Oh, 15. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll watch it. I saw it, it a long time ago. I need to rewatch it. It's great. And, you know, even the end of the movie is conflicting quotes from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you know, mm-hmm. and with a photo of them together. And you're like, wait a minute. What the hell just happened? <laughs> like, you can't stop thinking about it. And I still can't stop thinking about it these days. And yeah, I mean, I love it. And it's New York. And yeah. All right. You're going to convince me to spend more time. See, I, I generally watch a lot of documentaries and I read nonfiction and I need to, I need to break out. This may be the little nudge I needed. Yeah. Documentaries wise. Um, I watch a lot of hip hop documentaries, but one of my favorite ones of all time is, uh, mistaken for strangers. It's about the, the national. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's only like 60 or 70 minutes. Super okay. short, but do you listen to the national at all? No, I don't. Well, okay. So they're from Cincinnati and they're, it's a group of five with two sets of two brothers and then the lead singer 
who also has a brother who's not in the band and his brother's kind of this lives at home. Um, hasn't really got anything going. He's like, in his, I think he's probably 30 and mm-hmm. Matt, the lead singer invites him to be a roadie, like to be their road, you know, sort of, you know, take care of their writer and yeah. backstage stuff. And he totally is just blowing it on the job, but he's like doing all this videotaping with this small camcorder and like, like the band's managers, like literally put that down. Like you're not doing your job. <laughs> And it becomes this story about brothers and like musicians. And it is the goofiest, like truest documentary about music ever made. And is it on Netflix? Yeah, I think so. I'll, I think it's on, it it's on everything. I'll find it. We actually went to the Alamo draft house to go see it. Cause it was, they were just like randomly showing it, um, like six months ago. And sure enough, we're, we're sitting there and Tom Berninger, the brother who is uh-huh. the director of the movie, like introduced it. We're like, Oh my God, he was there for some podcast or something, but it's, it's wonderful. And it makes you feel like cinematography doesn't matter so much when you're making a film as much as the story does. Uh, And as a person who sucks at cinematography, it gives me hope. (laughs) Those are all great. Those are all great. Um, so you, you do all this outdoor activities, riding bikes, climbing, hiking, everything. Are there any, funny activities you do that would be surprising to people funny uh um, weird or should i ask hillary she could probably tell weird um stuff. boy like non-exercise related yeah do you knit no i've been uh, gosh what what do i do no you do a lot but i'm just wondering if there's anything strange not really. I ride my bike really fast around the city. Like I prefer to not ride with other people. Like it's, really? it's like its own video game. It's like its own sport actually. And like, it's, it's, I really wanted to make a film about it, but I'd have to film somebody else doing riding that way, which I think only one of my friends would be able to do. But it's just sort of like, I stop at a stoplights. I never run red lights, you know, like bike messenger style. You just sort of, yeah. ass. like, so that's and and you know, she'll be like, let's, let's ride our bikes to the dinner tonight. And I'm like, eh, again, all they're <laughs> Cause nothing, I always man. feel like I got to wait for somebody or like, Oh, are they doing okay? Do they make the light? And it's so much more fun to just like bomb around Ridden. and like dive in and out of alleys and like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm not going to hit this light. So I'll go right on red. Then I'll take a left in the alley and then I'll cut back out over here. And like, it makes you understand the city or any town, anything a lot better. It's so that. wonderful. Yeah. And like, I just hate parking. Like I hate park. Like it's so stupid to be like, Oh, the restaurant's a mile away and you get there with your car and you saved five minutes cause you drove, but then you got to drive around for 10 minutes looking for a parking spot. Like, where do I put my giant box? <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> so biking just makes so much more sense. But, um, yeah, that's, yeah, well, that's, that's a good answer. So this is an interesting question. What's the most powerful experience you've ever had in, in the outdoors? And that's probably hard for you. And it could be powerful, could equal scary. It could be funny. Just memorable. Yeah. I, I wrote a piece for adventure journal for this, the current issue that's out. And, um, we were, I was like a climber, like to me, that's what I wanted to do. Even, even though I didn't like get super strong at it for a long time, but my friend and I were 2013, we were climbing Castleton tower, which Mm -hmm. I thought was terrifying. I still probably do. Um, and we got to the top of the first pitch and a guy, above us and said, Hey, there's a loose block above here where I'm climbing. Just be careful. And I said, okay. And I, I built our belay. So I'd have room to like jump around basically yeah. and dodge it. And I was on a ledge, probably about the size of this table, at least, mm-hmm. you know, it's 10 feet by 
five feet or whatever. And my buddy, it was his turn to lead. So he started going up and he goes, this thing is really loose, you know, and, and he didn't touch it at, at all. It didn't even get next to it. And it just fell out and like exploded, <laughs> chopped our rope in like three places. And I was able, I didn't get hit by anything, you know, it was sandstone. So it blew up into a bunch of pieces, but he was up there and I was like, wow, dude, we're kind of, you know, maybe I should lower you and we'll talk about this. So I did. And we're sitting there trying to figure out if we got much rope left. And I remember Chris goes, Oh, we still have like 40 meters. We could do it. I'm like, I'm out of here, dude. <laughs> I'm already spooked by this thing. And the kids, they were kids from Colorado, Colorado college below us kids. I mean, they were 20, 20 or 21. And the guy led up past us and he went to rest on a cam placement and it just blew out and he fell hit his foot on the way down, flipped upside down and landed on his face first, literally right next to me, went into a seizure. And then we, um, you know, we, it was like, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and you're a hundred feet from a talus slope. That's pretty not negotiable. Um, so it took six hours, but they, um, were able to rescue him and he's fine. But, uh, you know, no thanks to us. I mean, we just basically clipped him in and we're like, okay, we'll help him be comfortable or whatever. And this guy above us rappelled down because he was actually a wilderness EMT and really took care of him. Um, but, uh, you know, that fall, I think, really uh, drove it home for me what what could happen in a climb. Because you think, you know, it's always worth it. And then I saw something like that. And I was like, you know, maybe this isn't worth it. You know, maybe I need to do other things. And I took a year off. Oh, did you really? Well, I, cont- I climbed for another year. And I was just, I was in Zion on an aid climb. My buddy was teaching me to aid climb and I was just looking up at this giant sheer wall with a crack in it, knowing I had to lead the last two pitches and just like, I spend a lot of time out here. with just this sickening sense of dread. Like, is this really even fun anymore? And after that trip, I started taking some time off and didn't really, haven't really gone back so much. I've done a little bit of climbing outdoors, a little bit in the gym and it's super cool. Uh, but I mostly got into ultra running, which was this way of pushing myself without, I mean, you could really mess yourself up, but you can't really like, people, yeah. people aren't dying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Worst and, case. I mean, you, yeah. you break your, break your ankle and you know, you got a long crawl out or whatever, but it's yeah. not, it's not that acute, I guess. Yeah. Usually. Um, and you know, you could get hyponatremia or whatever kidney failure or something like that, but it's been a great way to be, to still kind of see what I'm made of, but not like risk my life in, in that sense. Um, but that, when I think about it, that's probably the most powerful experience I've had. That's the real deal. And especially it'd be the real deal no matter what, but the fact that it kind of influenced your, your thoughts on climbing. Yeah. That's, that takes a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to be back in those days where you're like, ah, it's worth it. But I think it's part of partially like just getting older or maturing maybe in a sense where you're like. I don't have to do that yeah. to tell stories. Yeah. It was a great way to get into it. And it taught me so many things. And every once in a while, I really, really miss just hanging from like an anchor, like up 400 feet of granite, just watching the birds fly by. But I don't know, you know, I'll figure out a different way or, or maybe I'll get back to it. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? It's, like, it's the evolution. It's the process. You know? Yeah. Um, where is your favorite location in the West? If you can pick one, one spot It's hard. I don't, I don't Ooh. know that I could. Excellent question. It could be a town, mountain, anywhere. Boy, town, mountain. I feel like I'm just going to fill up I don't know. this podcast with dead air. Right now. <laughs> I mean, the one place I keep going back to, and I don't even necessarily do different things, is the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. You know, I've spent almost 
two months, I think, below the rim there. Oh, wow. And I've only lived out west since I was, well, 15 years now. But, like, you just, it's such a special place to just go sit and watch the light change, even if you just stand on the rim, you know. And, you know, people say, oh, it's a zoo up there. There's always like, tour buses, like, just pulling through and just mobs of people. But I, like, I don't even really mind that, you know. Yeah, I think um, the older you get, at least for me, I just think, well, I'm glad they're out here. It's better yeah. than walking around the mall. I wish they wouldn't feed the squirrels, but other than that, yeah. this is fine. <laughs> like, but yeah, you know, it's, you get to see that part of the experience. And then if you just like take off down the trail in an hour and a half, you're not going to see any of those people. Mm-hmm. You're going to be in your own place. And I've gotten to take my mom into the Grand Canyon twice. And she was not a hiker, you know, not a mountain climber by any means. And my dad went with us last year. Um, and we, I took him down the Grand View Trail, which was not a wise choice. One of the steepest things I've ever done. <laughs> My poor dad was just like cramping up and like, it was a big adventure for him. And he, uh, he soldiered through it and we got to the top and I was kind of like, well, pop, what do you think? And he was, he's like, that was, you know, it was really great. And I, th- I thought, you know, I asked him, you know, did this kind of give you an idea of what it's like for like a lot of the stuff I do out here? And he said, yeah, I'm like, good. Okay. And it was, I got one photo of them. That's really, the light was perfect. We were just a few hundred feet or a few thousand feet above the river in this great spot. And I just, I just sent an eight by 10 to him a few uh, last week. And was like, that was a really, really cool thing. You know, like a lot of people can see the grand Canyon, but if you're standing on the rim, it might as well be a painting. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, you don't get how hard it is to get down to the bottom and back or whatever. And I'm lucky to have been able to go there so many times, but Hey, I love that place. I always can think up a different excuse to go, yeah, maybe we should go do this. You know, like, so yeah, that's yeah. That's a special place. That was my first time ever going out west. Was the oh, really? when what I was in tenth grade. What'd you do? Rafted it. The first like uh, oh, to Phantom. No, we did just we did beyond that. I remember it was 188 miles. Oh, like Diamond Creek, probably. I think so. But yeah. my dad and I did it, and uh, it was it was you know a commercial tour operator, yeah. but it was it was just awesome. And that that was really my first taste of west. And then in senior in high school, I did a trip to uh buena vista ah. so that was my first rocky mountains but yeah, yeah it's it's hard to get your head around grand canyon the scale <laughs> of it the colors it's yeah it's like nothing else that uh raft trip is the best camping trip in the lower 48 yeah maybe, maybe the world i couldn't like, believe it man i mean yeah. I, I still think about that all the time that was yeah that was super cool um so last of these quick questions but and this is kind of a hard one too what's the best piece of advice you've ever received Oh boy. To narrow it down to one, that's tough. Um, when I was talking to your, your pal, Jillian, she turned it around on me and said, what's, what is yours? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? I didn't, I didn't listen to that part. I, there was a, um, I saw a quote. It's probably not the best ever, but I'd seen a quote that said mood follows action. Ah, and okay. I thought that was, I, I should get that tattooed on my forearm. <laughs> Because yeah. it's, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I always want to rest and sit around, and that does nothing for me. Yeah. And so the the action is key. Yeah. I mean, um, I think creatively, I have two pieces, two quotes I, I think about a lot, but they weren't directly given to me. One is one is Chuck Close, who's the artist who does the. If you ever seen his paintings or these some of these the things he did in the seventies, I think of these photorealistic portraits that are. It's like his head and it's like mm-hmm. nine feet by six feet. I think I have seen those. Yeah. yeah. It's one of them at the Walker art center in Minneapolis. That's one I've seen. And 
he his quote is inspiration is for amateurs the rest of us just show up and get to work i think that's great yeah because you're like oh i'm so inspired and that lasts about till about four percent of the work is done and you're like man i'm not inspired anymore mm-hmm. and then the other one is this this guy it was a navy seal jocko willink oh yeah i love that guy what's the the quote is uh don't don't count on motivation count on discipline mm-hmm. which i think if you get yourself in that mindset yeah i mean discipline is his own motivation like i if i only exercised when i was motivated i would weigh 400 pounds you know yes and but you know it gets you to do you know i don't think there is such a such a real thing as motivation for me anymore it's like no that's it it disappears too fast yeah it's you gotta you you gotta love the process i mean that's that's all there is to it yeah and then uh one of my friends and mentors when i went out on my own to do my own thing he said you'll be the toughest boss you ever had mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's totally true you know and like you know i've said to hillary one day we were sitting here and i was on a saturday and i go well i'm gonna just i just need to answer like 10 more emails and we can go out to dinner and it was like 4 p.m on a saturday and i go you know if my if my boss if i worked at a job and he said i emailed you on saturday why didn't you get back to me i'd be like whoa you don't own me you know? but now that i'm the boss i'm like oh i better get these emails done you know? like, you're like my boss is an asshole you're the man know? yeah right. so so yeah it's like you you work as hard as you want to succeed you know basically and yeah you, you're not answering to anybody you're not like but yeah if i was two people and one was the person that made me do the work i'd be like that guy's a jerk i'm quitting you know, like, this is bullshit Tyrant. yeah right so I think people need to keep that in mind. Anybody who has dreams of, of any creative pursuit, I mean, that's, you gotta have that, you gotta have that mentality. That's the common theme. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people who don't, don't have experience with it at first want to know, I get a lot of emails where people are like, do you have any advice or tips? Hack. T- hack. Yeah. Hack or tips, tricks. And I'm like, yeah, I get tip, go grind, you know, like, go do it for get to work. for years. Then you'll, then you'll suck at it for a while and then you'll get better. But I think they want to know some shortcuts. And I never actually did that when I was starting out. I just kind of like did it. And I watched a few people like Fitzcahald, like, you know, evolve as, you know, well, magazine writing's not really working. I think I'm going to go start a podcast and see how that goes. And, um, he's just, always believed in himself and had that sort of maybe not so much entrepreneurial, but like, I'm going to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And I saw it work for a couple people and I thought, Oh, I can maybe do something like that. Yep. You know? Um, but yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people just want like, can you tell me what to do? So I don't have to work hard. I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, or, or I'm just like, well, look up drive in the dictionary. That's what you need. Do that. <laughs> drive is way better than talent. You know, like hell yeah. Yeah. Talent, I mean, talent's uncontrollable. You have nothing to do with talent. You know, that's just this, this, it is what it is. Whereas you can control the drive. This is, yeah, I did when I speak, I have this, um, this talk I give called how to do what you think you can't in 226,000 simple steps. It's (laughs) it's like parallels ultra running. But the, the point is that, you know, talent is mostly just hard work. Yeah. You know, um, which is that free economics episode I was talking to you about. I'm so, a, yeah. I might listen to that on my own. Oh, it's fantastic. The ending will blow your mind. Okay. Yeah. I can't wait until you listen to cool. it. <laughs> um, so next to last question, if you could offer some advice to the listeners, we may have just covered that talking about working hard, but offer some advice or make a request to the people who listen to this podcast. And it can be the people who listen to this, they love the West in one way or the other. Some of them are creative. Some of them are athletes. Some of them are ranchers. 
hunters. Um, it's the the full spectrum, but the the common theme is that they all love the West. Mm. And so if they're given all your experience out here and everything you've done, is there any thing you would ask of those people or advice you could offer? Oh man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a pretty broad net to cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another one of the talks I give, I rely a little bit on this quote by, or it's a saying that Jim Carrey, the actor actually said in a graduation speed talking about, um, fear disguises practicality. And you'll always come up for reasons why you don't, why you can't do things because you, you convince yourself it's the right thing. You know, I can't do that because I have a mortgage or I got to do this thing on Monday. So I can't, you know, or whatever. And, um, to separate reasons from excuses, I guess is, is really, um, is something that I would say has worked well for me. Um, and I think we all have those practical quote unquote, practical excuses of why not to do things, which is like, visit someplace new or try something that we haven't done before or, you know, put ourselves out there creatively or whatever. Um, and I think if you can get past that fear and just do the thing, you know, it's life is a lot more rewarding than if you just, you know, watch another season of game of Thrones or whatever, whatever we're doing instead of doing the things we really want to do. That quote was in your book and I I underlined it because I thought it was so, I thought it was so great. And I'll, again, people need to read, all your books, but the, the ones that I recently read and I thought were so great were 60 meters to anywhere and, um, make it till you make it. Yeah. And they're both awesome. So go get I, them. Yeah. I'd appreciate it if everyone bought five copies of each of them. <laughs> no, just, just five? Ten. Well, like, yeah. Ten. But I mean, like if you have an office where you think people would benefit from those, you know, you should probably buy 25 for everybody in the oh, office. At least. At least. <laughs> um, so how can people connect with you online? Uh, semirad.com is my website. And um, all the social media handles are semi underscore rad. Sweet. So Twitter, uh, Instagram, stuff like that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. It's been great. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperry.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.